Hello and welcome to another Start Your Week from the Bunker, where we set out what's going to matter in the seven days ahead. I'm Andrew Harrison and up with the lark with me today is Hannah Fern, independent reporter and columnist. Hello Hannah, how are you doing? Morning, yeah, I'm good, thank you. Good weekend, energised, ready for the ready for the fray? Yes, the uh, <laughs> weather really bothered me. I got absolutely drenched. I ended up in KFC, it's that desperate. That's but it. yeah, no, good, thanks. Broken Britain. Um, so we usually start by concentrating on the UK, but this morning we've all woken up to the astonishing scenes in Brasilia. Supporters of the former President Bolsonaro staging a January the 6th style storming of the Brazilian Congress. They also entered the Supreme Court and vandalised the presidential palace. Police regained control of the buildings on Sunday night after hours of clashes, about 300 arrests. Hannah, this is incredibly worrying. What does this say about Brazil and its state after the uh, presidential election? Well, I think it's interesting to kind of ask why this has happened in Brazil in exactly the same way it did in the US. And I think it's about relevance, isn't it? I mean, they've witnessed what happened in the US over the last year, the state that US politics is in, and those who are ardent and angry supporters of Bolsonaro are sort of seeing a playbook, I think, that they are hoping to emulate simply because it has managed to keep Trump and Trumpianism, I suppose, relevant in the US. So it keeps the divisions going. It prevents any kind of unity under Lula. It's the kind of thing that basically prevents a vacuum opening up on on the right. If you've got, you know, these kind of large scale demonstrations, anti-democratic protests, destruction of public buildings, it dominates the news agenda. It's been a huge number of people who've actually taken part. I think the Supreme Court judge in Brazil has uh, a Supreme Court judge, I'm sorry, I don't have his name, but specifically stated that it, that it was a much larger action than we saw on the 6th of January last year in the US. So yeah, I think that this is a really, a really troubling moment, but it tells us a lot about the state of the extreme right all over the world. Lula, the newly elected president, was forced to declare emergency powers during the, well, it's an insurrection, I suppose, had to close down the capital, send in the National Guard. I mean, as you say, it does seem to make clear that the purpose of populism is not so much to gain and maintain power, it's to maintain division, maintain chaos and maintain a sense of grievance. Yeah, that's right. I think the fact that um, the last thing that the far right needs is some kind of vacuum that somebody else can fill, I suppose. I mean, if you look at what happened with QAnon, that was a, 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 a that filled a vacuum. There was a lot of discontent. There were questions being asked by people whose lives were you know, not turning out the way they'd hoped, whose opportunities for stability and, uh, and growth in life weren't there. So it became filled with this bizarre conspiracy theory. So they know if they, they leave a vacuum, something or somebody else will fill it. God forbid, potentially the far left. So it's about kind of keeping visible, uh, becoming a, 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 for, a continued force, whether or not you're actually holding democratic power. I think that's the most frightening bit about it. It's not about achieving democratic power. It's just simply about being a, a political force in whatever means that can be expressed. I think that's something that we should sort of cotton onto and start thinking about in every democracy. Back home, the mini winter of discontent rumbles on with bus drivers, nurses, ambulance drivers and teachers all going on strike this week. The effects of the mail strike are still being felt and junior doctors are balloting today on future strike action. However, ministers are due to have talks with health, teaching and rail unions today, all separately, of course. Hannah, is that a sign that the government's resolve might be cracking? 
I did think when I listened to Sunak's interview with uh, Laura Koonsberg on the BBC yesterday that the unions are right to interpret this as a sign of kind of softening, dare we say, cracking from the government. And I think obviously incredibly welcome, but you have to look at the opinion polling and see where the country is. I mean, they're so far away from the government. I'm not surprised to see a change of position, um, however soft it might have been in the language used yesterday in that interview. There is a genuine risk, and I've said this before, I really ge- I do believe it, that if Sunak continues an incredibly hard line position across all of these public sector strike areas, that he creates a mood in which a general strike is a possibility. I'm not going to say likelihood, but a genuine possibility. And I think looking at the polling and so on, he's probably realised that this can't go on. His position can't, it's not sustainable. So something has to change. So I expect we will see some movement this week. I did a, uh, a Bunker Daily, which came out at the weekend with uh, the historian Colin Hay about the last winter of discontent. It's really fascinating. I mean, I'm old enough to experience it, who have experienced it firsthand. I've forgotten that in January of 1979, there was a national day of action. Yeah, and one and a yeah. half million people went out on strike at the same time. So that's more or less a general strike, isn't it? Yeah, almost exactly. I mean, yeah, you can call also the, the press will, and you know, as a journalist, I probably would. If you had, you know, more than one or two million people on strike, it is a general strike. You can call it that. So it almost doesn't matter how it's coordinated. It's the language used, and Sunak must know that that really influences how people feel when they're going to the ballot box. So it, yeah, something's got to change now. This is it's an exciting moment. I think this week we'll, we'll really see some movement, and in the favour of. Of public, of public uh, servants, and, and that's a great thing. Well, it was amusing to hear Sunak in the Koonsberg interview saying he wanted to have an honest two-way conversation. <laughs> now you want an honest two-way conversation? <laughs> so the Guardian is also reporting that the government might look at a one-off payment to health workers, possibly a winter hardship payment. This is exactly the thing that Downing Street and the Treasury were accused of blocking last yeah. month. Does a hardship payment cut it when nurses are after a permanent raise? I mean, if they think if they'd gone for a hardship payment six months ago, it might have actually been enough. But at this point, I think probably not. And particularly, you know, the nurses unions feel like they're finally making some headway and they're, they're seeing the way, you know, being locked in this, this dispute is going for them in terms of public opinion. I think that they won't think it's enough. And, you know, rightly so. We can't have our nurses using food banks. I can't say this enough times. And I think I think the majority, of course, all our listeners will agree, but I think the majority of people in the country are appalled that nurses, particularly in the wake of a pandemic in which they have done frontline work, saved lives, put themselves at extreme risk. And, and as we now know, working for a government that fundamentally didn't protect them through the PPE scandals and so on, that they deserve much more. And they're fed up of hearing of all the reasons that this government can't manage to, to achieve it. On the politicking of it, what will, you know, meeting the union barons do to Sunak's position with the Tory right, which is already pretty shaky? Is it, you know, beer and sandwiches in number 10 all over again? Slayed on the radio? Yeah, I do think um, what's going on inside the Conservative Party is just as interesting, actually. How do you survive if you're trying to unite a party that is already completely splintered in what it, where it stands on, on, on every issue at the moment, frankly? How can having have been forced, I suppose, into making such late conciliatory tones help unite it. I mean, it simply can't. So the problem here is how long everything's taken. Sunak's tried one strategy, it's failed horrifically, and now he's forced into another strategy. And the length of time everything's taken is, is made his position more difficult. It's splintered the party further, and it's also been bad for the country. So 
it's just poor politics in every in every fashion. Speaking of poor politics, he was also squirming uh, when he was asked if he had private health care himself. He said it was not really relevant and a distraction. And the RCN General Secretary, Pat Cullen, subsequently said, I think as a public servant, you ought to be clear with the public whether or not you're a private health care user. Does it matter? Should we expect the Prime Minister to wait in A&E with you know, the kids with saucepans stuck on their head like the rest of us? <laughs> no, I don't think we should. And I also, I don't get this. I really don't get get this sort of obsession with keeping your nose clean on this. Why won't he admit it? Of course he's got private health care. Do people he's married care to about a billionaire? <laughs> well, it's not just that. Most people who earn anywhere near, you know, let's say twice the national general wage have packages with their employer that gives them the right, if they choose to, to have a salary sacrifice for private healthcare, and a lot of them take it. Some don't for, you know, ideological reasons, and, and, you know, fair enough, that's absolutely right for them. I don't understand why anybody thinks this is a problem. If he just fronted it out and said, yes, I use private healthcare, I'm in a lucky enough position that I can afford it, it gives me flexibility in my job, and that's something I value, I, I, I'm, you know, it's I am running the country, so I have to be available. It's not the kind of slam dunk his PR team obviously think it is for the opposition. Again, it's about this remoteness from where the majority of people stand. Most people listening to Sunak would think, yeah, mate, if I could afford it, I would have private health care. Of course, I'd want to kind of make sure that my family, my children had options if I could afford it. So I don't understand. It's, he claims to be about, you know, aspiration. Well, hang on a minute. This is one of the things that some, some people really do aspire to. So why is he now denying it for himself? doesn't make any sense. I think it's a really bad PR strategy. Um, that it, again, just showing this lack of understanding of what most people think. And also, he's allowing this to turn into a kind of a long saga where we're sitting here now on a Monday morning chatting about it, thinking about it. Why allow us that space? I, I, bizarre. Bizarre. Hi, I'm Katie Riley. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, Donald Trump became the first former U.S. president in history to face a criminal trial. The defendant repeatedly made false statements on New York business records. This is not a trial. This is not a, an act of criminality. We cannot and will not normalize serious criminal conduct. This is the story of his first week in court told through the transcripts. Listen now to the Slow Newscast wherever you get your podcasts. Parliament is reopening this week. It should be suitably combative. Uh, strikes are all over it, of course. We should watch out for the government possibly rushing through its emergency legislation on strikes in transport. The mm. plans uh, provide for unions being sued for damages by operating companies if they don't maintain a minimum service. There's also talk of extending it to other public services. So negotiation with one hand and harsh anti-union laws with the other. How's that going to work? This is some acts of panic to me. I think what's interesting in this uh, inside this legislation is the the idea that um, you know that the unions could be sued for disruption. I don't think there's any interest if you take the, the train companies. As an example, since that's the one that's kind of rolling on um, most aggressively at the beginning of this week. If you take the train companies, the unions know that the train operating companies have been well ahead of the government on this for years. And the, they are furious with the government 
for basically holding them back and preventing them making making a pay deal with the unions. The whole train industry is well ahead of the government. The government's been preventing resolution of this for political reasons. Do unions think that the train operating companies are going to turn around and sue them for simply doing their job? They know that they won't. They know that all the beef is with the government. It's pushing up. So this kind of scare tactic to try and cow the unions, it's definitely not going to work. I also, I don't think it'll get through. Um, maybe I'm naive on that. So there is still a massive majority, obviously, in, in Parliament. But this is a, a strange bit of legislation that also the government's been sitting on for quite a long time. So why pull it out now? It definitely smacks of, you know, feeling the fear inside uh, number 10. Well, it's been trailed that uh, it would allow uh, services to sack workers who go on strike in six areas, including the health service, education, fire and border security, as well as rail. It has been pointed out that you don't restore services by sacking the people who are supposed to provide <laughs> exactly. them. Exactly. What are you going to do then? Uh, let's get rid of everyone. And then it takes quite a long time to train a nurse, perhaps half as less time, but still a significant number of years to uh, train a train driver. I mean, th- this is, is laughable. Well, Andrew Gilligan, who was who was transported to Boris Johnson, of all people, pointed out that it would just move unions away from strikes and into other forms of action, like, you know, work to rule overtime bans and stuff. And the way the railways depend on overtime is, is clear to anybody who takes trains. Yeah. And even the Department for Transport's own impact assessment said, agreed, and also said that minimum service levels would actually increase the frequency of strikes. So basically, all round, brilliant move. Let's get it on the statute book. Sounds brilliant. Um, <laughs> another one to watch. By the way, we should all uh, get the popcorn on this week because Mick Lynch is going before the Transport Committee on Wednesday. So that could be fun. That will be fun. What I think is really fun about that also is that half the uh, the Transport Committee is going to be basically behind him. <laughs> it's going to be a really, really amusing, um, you know, sparring contest, I suppose. But I think he's going to come out of it looking pretty good. He'd have to really make a significant tactical mistake to come out of that looking bad. They should ask him about Brexit. That will really set uh, the chasm on the pigeons. <laughs> uh, one thing, another thing to look out for uh, in in, in uh, this parliamentary uh, session that's starting this week, look out for a motion to suspend Conservative MP, prominent Brexiter and favourite of our podcasts, Andrew Bridgen <laughs> from the Commons for five days. He lost an appeal against the Standards uh, Committee ruling. It's not much, but I mean, Bridgen's star really is in decline at the moment. He's now attaching himself to anti-vax nonsense. Um, is, car- is karma real? Uh, he, he, so he's going to be suspended for rules around lobbying, which is really boring compared to what he should be suspended for, in my personal view, which is basically being a danger to the general public with this nonsense he's been peddling um, about the vax being related to gene therapy, which is obviously not true. Yeah, he, he's, he's a worrying character. The thing that really made me chuckle, though, when I was having a look about um, his his particular strange views on vaccines is that one of the tweets that he got in trouble for uh, retweeting, um, which was which was basically pure disinformation about COVID, was penned by an account called The Vigilant Fox. <laughs> <I was laughs> not particularly vigilant, are you, Andrew? No, yes. I mean, what a disaster for politics he is. Get out of the bins, vigilant Fox. <laughs> uh, in other government news, uh, on Friday, Home Secretary uh, Suella Braverman sneaked out an announcement that the government is not going to honour several of its commitments to the victims of the Windrush scandal. Braverman's going to break a promise to create a migrants commissioner, which would speak up for migrants and spot problems inside the UK immigration system. Uh, she's cancelling a series of reconciliation events with Windrush victims, which were, they were supposed to meet senior Home Office officials. I mean, this doesn't even serve her own putrid agenda on immigration. It doesn't achieve anything. It's just gratuitous, isn't it? 
I, the really upsetting one, I think, is is that um, removal of the commissioner, because it that spoke really to an acceptance of the government's failure and the need for there to be some kind of independent auditor or eye on what they are doing around immigration. And yes, the things that are being dropped here don't relate specifically to, you know, Windrush residents or their family, but it's a betrayal of that confession, that admission of, of such, a, such a grave error. I saw in The Guardian that there was a quote from an anonymous source within the Home Office saying that the kind of motivation for dropping some of these things, it's not about time or admin or so on. It's about the fact that Braverman wants to get away from the toxicity of the Windrush you know, scandal, which, first of all, what are you talking about? Braverman is probably the most toxic individual that's been in the Home Office at any point. And secondly, sorry, this is your government. It doesn't matter that it wasn't you that was at the head of this department at the point at which the Windrush scandal was was unmasked. It's your government. You are accountable for it. There's, you can't just drop the pledges and expect that to be a way of getting around the fact that your government failed this country so gravely. I find it really depressing because this is politics being done in a way that's so deeply immoral that I, I, I find it shocking. Yeah, it's it's pretty foul. Uh, in the US, uh, lots of good jokes died at the weekend when the Republicans finally elected 14-time loser Kevin McCarthy as House Speaker on the 15th go. McCarthy had to make major concessions to the loony right of the party. Just one member will be able to trigger a vote on removing him. There are spending restraints. There are seats on the House Rules Committee for the extremists. Is McCarthy just basically a prisoner of the crazy right now? Is he the American Theresa May? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a bit like that, actually. That's a, that's a good comparison. I mean, the idea that you go through 15 rounds of votes to get into this position of inverted commas strength is is uh, amusing. I think I saw that even Trump had basically said, come on, guys, let's get something sorted <laughs> not that long ago. So, you know, how much how much strength is there in in this appointment? Probably not very much. Interesting to see how it unfolds. We've been trailed that there'll be a host of investigations against Biden the minute they can finally get their act together. Mm. We learned from the New York Times this morning that there's also a plan to investigate the FBI and the security agencies to create a special judiciary subcommittee on what it calls the weaponization of the federal government and even the origins of COVID. And it's going to be under Jim Jordan, who's a notorious far-right uh, member. Is this, is, this looks like the institutionalization of, of paranoid politics in the Trump style, the continuing of the Trump agenda, the idea of the, this nonsense about the deep state. Mm, but I, but I like that comment, weaponization of federal government. I mean, what is this process if it's not that? You yeah. know, the, the the organs of federal government are are what's being used now to to investigate. <laughs> it, it's it's such a perverse cycle that the American politics has got itself into. And and like you say, there's there's now going to be a massive bum fight with Biden over access to various you know highly sensitive secret documents, particularly around the FBI and national security, in order to be able to progress these investigations. Should they get off the ground? So rather than, you know, the weaponization of federal government, what it simply does is it grinds the whole thing to a halt. So you lose government, essentially. Uh, we're watching, uh, you know, the, the collapse of the uh, of the oversight of the, you know, House of Representatives. I, I, again, 
I don't know what to expect, but I think we can predict that it's it's simply going to be all about the far right and uh, preser- preserving its uh, ability to dictate the narrative rather than actually hold any meaningful power. Because after you know, if it takes you fifteen rounds of votes to get to this position, it's not it's not genuine strength. Yeah. It's the ERG all over again. And yeah, Dallas, exactly. We'll, we will be returning to this on Bunker USA endlessly over the next few years. Finally, there was absolutely no point looking at the front pages today because it is endless Harry and Meghan nonsense, which I'm trying to avoid. It drives me insane. There was the ITV interview last night. I mean, give give us your uh, take on what we can expect this week in the ongoing public collapse of Prince Harry. Oh, I find this so boring as well. You know, I I know a lot of people are very energised by this particular story. It is surprising that he's given so much of himself. I just don't give a fuck. (laughs) I just find it really difficult to care. What is interesting, though, is how, like I said, how much he has shared. So from, you know, literally losing his virginity, the stuff about fighting with his bro. It's so personal. I saw some speculation that I thought was quite interesting. That is this whole process about having given so much that there's nothing left for the tabloids to find. That once this is over, he's done. It's out. It's finished. If he thinks that's a good strategy, he is so wrong (laughs) but maybe that's it because nothing else explains it really to me I don't know why he's done this I don't really care how well he gets on with his family afterwards I just don't know why he's done this in terms of his own peace of mind this is bizarre absolutely bizarre the only straw that I can kind of grasp out of this whole thing is that maybe it will finally kill the notion that radical honesty and openness and speaking your truth is always a good idea you know what Maybe it isn't. Maybe it isn't. Maybe you're right. And actually, frankly, I agree. Because while I think it's really important that they're discussing the things, the issues around racism and around the acceptance of his wife in you know, the royal family, I expect there are huge issues there that are genuinely of public interest. And yes, I would care about hearing about. Do I care about having a scuffle you know, with his brother and whether his chain got broken? Oh, I don't care. Everybody falls out with their family occasionally. Honestly, I despair of it. I don't know how it's managed to last so many days, but clearly people do have the appetite for this. So maybe I'm just, you know, maybe this is where I'm divorced from the public in that I just don't care. The only bit that sort of stands out to me is that it's kind of seen as, well, they're, they're they're fighting the establishment from within and they're trying to bring down all these rotten structures of... Of, of the monarchy no they're, they're fighting to have that because they didn't get the um, yes, benefits yes. of the of this particular rock yeah they, they wanted they were, everything yeah they, they thought exactly. they were entitled to and they didn't get them and now they're now they're uh, kicking off about it obviously there are multiple dimensions and there's the racism and so forth but let's not forget the most important thing which is this is boring and horrible and we should think about something else that's the <laughs> take away, I think. there's some really important news happening let's talk about yes. that Yes, which we have, to be fair, but we we left this till last, which is the right did, thing yeah. to do. <laughs> and we've been we've been captured by it. We've have, we've been talking about whether we like it or not. I, I think in ten years' time, it will come out that the whole that Prince Harry was actually a psyop from the government, <laughs> keep the government <laughs> off the front page. So that's enough to be chewing on for one week, I think. Hannah Fern, thank you for joining me. Thank you, listeners. Remember, you can make it bearable for us to get up at the crack of dawn on Mondays, and also to create all of our other handcrafted daily podcasts by backing us on Patreon. You'll get the shows early, plus our quality merchandise, which is much more collectible than a Royal Dalton, Harry and Meghan figurine, 
which was being advertised to me on Facebook over the weekend, reduced from £199 to £149. I think they're being a little bit on the optimistic side. Plus, you'll also get a shout out on the podcast, just as Hannah is about to do now. Thanks to Dan Stinton, Matt D, Godfrey Oyasaw, Paul Holt, Paul Needham, aka Red Paul. Thanks everyone for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Start Your Week from the Bunker was written and presented by Andrew Harrison with Hannah Fern. The producers were Alex Reese and Jet Gerbertson, with assistant production from Kasia Tomashevich. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, and the audio producer was me, Jay Bailey. The group editor is Andrew Harrison, and our marketing manager is Gina Richard. Music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>